we're looking at the methods of Paul. You might say, well, what exactly is that, the methods of Paul? Last week, we see that Paul goes out for a missionary journey. And it's very interesting to see how someone who is picked by the Holy Spirit to leave an environment of which they'd grown comfortable and had a vibrant teaching ministry to step out into a situation. What does it look like to go on mission? Last week we looked at his mission to the Jews. And Paul's method was always that when he came into a city, he would look for the nearest synagogue. Now, of course, Judaism at that time had become a great branch off of what we would consider Old Testament belief in God for the nation of Israel. But because there was disobedience with Israel and they were eventually exiled to different nations, which God promised them would happen if they were disobedient to him, uh, he was certainly long-suffering with them. But because they were exiled in those situations, they ended up coming to uh, needing to practice their belief in God, even though they were far away from Jerusalem. And this is where the idea of the synagogue actually came up, was developing a meeting place in the midst of foreign countries amongst a pagan people or a Gentile people uh, who had no reverence for their God, but were actually under the influence of idolatry and other gods. They still needed a place to worship. And this is where we admire such things like the devotion of Daniel, even though he was under captivity with Babylon and those types of things. Well, that carried across from the Old Testament into the New Testament times. And so since Judaism had spread and it actually become more of a checklist religion than it was about enhancing a relationship with God, this idea of the synagogue was a very important deal. Well, Paul saw that as fertile ground of which to go and to develop the seeds that had already been planted by the Old Testament and to help better understand the person of the Messiah who is Jesus Christ. Now for us today, we take Jesus Christ for granted. I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, necessarily. It's just the idea that if we've grown up in more of a Christian home or a Christian culture or those types of things, we kind of gravitate to Jesus a little bit easier if it's been threaded through the fabric of our family. Uh, for these people, the idea of Jesus coming up, I'm sure there were all kinds of things running through the rumor mills of the city about who Jesus was. Paul saw it as his mission to take the promises of God in the Old Testament and to tie them together and plug them in in such a way as to where people who had that background could just simply recognize the evidence of the Savior and come to their own conclusion about, oh wow, this Jesus must have truly been the Messiah. Now what's amazing is that evidence is so powerful even today that you will find so many Jewish synagogues, especially over in Israel, that refuse to teach on a passage like Isaiah 53. Now you would think is, is Jews, and we would consider them maybe more uh, orthodox for Old Testament, they would want to be teaching on all that the Old Testament has to say. But they purposely avoid Isaiah 53 because of how blatantly it speaks to the person of Jesus fulfilling all of these things. And it's actually quite startling whenever you find that Jews come to this realization. If you search on YouTube, again, YouTube, search for good things, not bad things, okay? But if you type in something like Isaiah 53, or if you just type in Isaiah 53 Jewish or something like that, you will actually find a, a decent uh, linked video of a man who's going around and explaining the fellow Jews in Hebrew about, could you read Isaiah 53 out and tell us? Because this is forbidden in the, in the synagogues. Could you read it? And let's talk about what it's about. It's very interesting to see some of the conclusions these people come to when they see it face to face. Well, that's Paul's first method. 
His first method is to take a people who will already have a good foundation that has been laid from Old Testament history and build upon it to a Messiah. But what do you do with everybody else? That's a good question. And oftentimes we find ourselves to where we might not have a Jewish audience to minister to, but if we need to share the gospel, how do we need to go about approaching a people who has either been deceived or is really losing the foundation of a God-centered heritage? I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, but this is where America's finding itself right now. I was really disturbed about 15 years ago when I heard that other countries were sending missionaries to America. And you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the prideful red, white, and blue guy that I am. Well, we're out here to save everybody else. You know, we, we're sending missionaries to everybody else. No, they're recognizing the depravity of America and they're saying, we've got to send people there to preach the gospel because, think about it guys, obviously their people are not doing that. Their churches are not doing that. I don't know about you, but that's humbling. But if we had to be honest, it's, it's a little more shameful than maybe what we would expect. Are we a people that are prepared to share the gospel? Let me say this real quick before we jump in our text. And I know I gave him a hard time a few weeks ago when we shared about Pastor Steve instigating a conversation where we had the opportunity to share Christ with somebody and, and, and a lady came to the Lord. And I'm very excited because her and her husband are going to come to the Wild Game Feed. They're very excited about it. But on Thursday morning, Chuck Ness had the opportunity to lead a young man to Christ. Uh, right here in our building. Uh, Kurt had met him, brought him in. They sat down started having conversations centered around the Bible. Chuck had the opportunity and saw the open door and presented Jesus Christ to him. He believed. Now a brother in Christ, eternally saved, sins completely forgiven. How fantastic is that? So, it, it, it's real. It can happen. In fact, I would say open doors are waiting for us to walk through. So praying to have eyes to see that, and really just using the opportunity. When God presents the opportunity, hey, why not? Right? It seems like the, the right thing to do. So yes, being ready to share the gospel. So Chuck, thank you for your faithfulness. It's great. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. In chapter 17 of Acts, I want to get a really large running start. So honestly, I'm just going to read for a little bit. Why do you laugh? Louise, why do you laugh? Do you need some do you need some chocolate? Here we go. Verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Does that sound familiar from last week? Right? Acts 13, Acts 11, that type of stuff. So notice it says here, he went to them, sorry, and according to Paul's custom, this is just what he did, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now to us, we understand the word Christ. To a Jewish mind, it's the word Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that had always been promised about. Now here's an interesting thing. 
Does everybody see in verse 3 where he says, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead? Anybody want to guess why they don't read Isaiah 53 today? Because it explains about a Messiah that would suffer and rise from the dead. Somebody that would take the iniquity of the people upon himself. That's why they don't read it. Why? Because you can't come to any other conclusion about this person but Jesus of Nazareth. So This is probably why that's been omitted. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous. Now that's interesting because notice the motivation for why this happened. Becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, poor Jason, and some brethren before the city authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, immediately, thank God for people like Jason. We don't know anything about him other than he just got beat up for Christ, okay? That's what we know. Praise the Lord for a faithful brother like that. Now, here's what I love is the message. There's another king. His name is Jesus. Boy, that didn't sit well in Rome. Caesar is God, right? No, he's just somebody that God's allowed to hold a place for a time until his rightful king comes into power. Boy, that, that's, that's not how you win friends. Verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they'd received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. Give us some money, we'll let you go. Good grief, is that not like the world? Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into, note it, the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. I think that's funny because another translation of the noble-minded is they were more open-minded. Isn't that interesting? We often get knocked so much because we're such narrow-minded Christians. I think it's amazing when they show up here to present the gospel. These people are more welcoming and receiving of the idea that Jesus Christ could rightfully be the Messiah that they're always reading about every week in synagogue. I think that's a beautiful thing. Notice it says here, For they received the word with great eagerness, you got to love that, examining the scriptures daily. They didn't know Jesus, but their noses were in the Old Testament every day. And they wanted to know, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And by examining, guess what? It's true. They they did it to see whether these things were so. Therefore, because of that action that they took in responding to Paul's message, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, But when the Jews in Thessalonica, and you might want to take your pen and go, good grief, those guys again, right? Write that in. Here they come from another place, following along Paul's ministry to do nothing but cause and stir up dissension. Okay? So notice this. The Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea. 
And also they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. This is an incredible scene. Paul has a drive to share the gospel. Here's what I love, is the fact that God gives the calling. Paul is willing. That's how ministry works. God lays on our hearts what needs to happen. He gives us an idea or or an inkling of a people group that needs to be ministered to, certain people that need to be cared for. I tell you what, I had the most phenomenal uh, conversation yesterday in my living room. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I used to play in bands, uh, real crazy bands, not ashamed of it, okay? Uh, And a guy moved in down the street from me. He still plays in super crazy bands, and I love it. And what's amazing about him is he has a heart for, hold on to your wigs, okay, Satanists. He enjoys hanging out, dialoguing, befriending, and loving on Satanists. And the reason is, is he said, nobody else prays for these people. Everybody has dismissed them as far gone and unreachable. He said, that's not my God. My God can reach anyone. And so, he loves talking with Satan's. And I actually sit there and was so challenged on my couch, thought, I don't know that I could do that. Boy, it was a testimony. It was a testimony of the strength of the gospel in moving somebody's heart to say, even these people need Jesus. How fantastic. This is probably what motivated Paul's method. I know that the Jews need Jesus because I was a Jew who needed Jesus. And so I need to come and tell them about how all of their Old Testament comes to a glorious conclusion and it all makes sense in the end. But because persecution comes and because Paul's mission is valuable, they have to move him on at night to another place. Well, we're going to tell this synagogue about Jesus as well. Oh, here comes that crowd again. We got it. We got to move him on. We got to get him protected out of here. And he ends up in a place like Athens. Do we have a map back there, Dave? Can we see that? I don't even know which one it is. I think we got three of them. Just choose one. We'll go with it. Here it is. Now, special thanks to Ruth Chadwick for this. She brought me a pointer. (laughs) Right? So here's what's amazing. Last week we looked at Pisidian Antioch. Okay, does everybody remember that? It was different from Antioch uh, that Paul had come from. Uh, when he was was considered Saul and Barnabas, the church that they they grew up were part of was way over here. Notice that this is the region of Galatia, which we understand we get the book of Galatians. It was written to a region of churches, not just a specific church. He was ministering here in Pisidian Antioch. Over here is Ephesus, which we're of course going to be very concerned with. Notice that his travels had taken him to Thessalonica. That's where all those fiery Jews came from that wanted to tear him down and were stirring up riots in the cities. By night, they moved him, and they moved him over into Berea, of all places here. Well, they heard about that, and they just couldn't stand it anymore. They had to do that. Notice that Corinth is located down here in this region. Dave, do we have Athens? Where that would have went through? I think that might be the next one, maybe? Possibly? Yes. And so notice, Philip, there's Berea. 
Notice that he moved all the way down in this situation. He came all the way down into the area of Athens. Corinth is going to be, I think, located right over in here. But all the way down in this situation. Now here's the sad thing about Athens. It was actually said of historians at that time, there are more gods than people in this place. You will actually find something to worship quicker than you'll find somebody to have a conversation with. It was a crazy, destitute place. I went through all my pictures uh, that I took of Ukraine in 2014 when I went there to try to find that when I would walk into either these Catholic churches or these Orthodox churches, all the relics and idols and everybody bowing down and weeping. I even went into some of the catacombs that were underneath some of the Eastern Orthodox churches in Kiev. And these people are kissing these glass coffins that are holding these dead bodies that are just laying there and have been there for years and years and years. And they're just weeping and weeping over this whole thing. And I thought, good grief, where's the Lord Jesus in all this? And then when I came out the end of the catacombs, I was in the store of the church and laid out under glass were all of these gold and silver enshrined crosses that you could own and have that own icon that would fit in your home so that you would always have the presence of truth there that would speak to you about the Lord and just... Man, it was overwhelming. When we get into a verse like verse 16, I found myself in that experience identifying with Paul here. Look what it says. Now while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come because he sent for them at Athens. Look at this. His spirit was provoked. Have you ever had your spirit provoked before? Do you know what that feels like? You're unsettled. You're a little agitated about what's going on. But an amazing conclusion that you come to is something's got to be done about this. Now here's what I, what, I, what I think is not good. Is when we say something needs to be done about this and then we go to somebody else to do it. I think we actually let the Holy Spirit know that He can sit down now. We've had enough. But what I love about Paul is notice what it says. His spirit was being provoked within him. It is an internal unrest that takes place within us. Have you ever had that before? Notice it says here, as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, short trivia quiz. When you're ever in a place that has idols, who's behind the idols? Satan. It's always a situation where demons have been involved. Always. Uncompromisingly. Why? Because Satan's greatest goal is to deceive the nations. That's one of the reasons that we're told both when he's locked away in the abyss for the millennial kingdom and when he's let loose. Deceiving the nations are bookends in that situation. Read Revelation 20. You'll see it. He is a deceiver of the nations. And if he can get them to worship a lesser object than the almighty, incomprehensible, and uncontainable creator of all things, he's accomplished a lot to create patterns of deceit in people. Paul looks around and he sees all this and he can't stand it. He's got to do something. Look what happens here in verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue. Notice he hasn't abandoned that approach. With the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. 
he didn't just hang out at the religious place of his kinfolk. He went over to Walmart to say something to some people. Everybody see that? It's almost like Paul showed up here. He's like, hey, do you guys know about this? And then he said, I'll be right back. And he head over to the bread aisle. I've got something to say to the common person. And notice how he did it. He did it daily. Now here's what's strange is he gets intercepted. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. You say, well, who in the world is that? If you think Epicurean, it may help you if you write in next to that atheist. They're the atheist of the day. They're the materialists of the day. Matter is all that matters, was their idea. It was a thing where you have no afterlife to speak of. And if you could achieve some sort of um, culturally acceptable pleasure, you've reached the pinnacle of life. It was a type of hedonism that was supposed to be seen, and forgive the term, but kosher. It's kosher hedonism is what it was. Uh, we would get this from uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Any Dave Matthews bands? fans out there, some of you know what I'm talking about, and drink and be merry, and that guy, hedonistic is what it is, that's one of his songs by the way, I wasn't having an episode, just so you know, <laughs> it's one of his songs, but eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, sounds incredibly momentary and fatalistic at the same time, well this is their philosophy, Stoics were a little bit different, Stoics were actually pantheists, deity is within all things. Divine principles are found both in nature and humans. Uh, if you could strive for moral excellence, that's what will come out on top. And so that's what we go for. Human achievement. Trust in yourself. I've devised a plan, and that's what's going to work. Those types of, uh, of mentalities that they would bring to it. So these guys are hearing what Paul's saying, and they go, wait a second, we gotta, we, we got to get this in here and see what's going on. So notice. Verse 18, also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? It's a very strange word. It means seed picker. It's almost like uh, this backwoods, hick, redneck guy. It's a very derogatory and demeaning kind of, he's making a big deal out of nothing. He's, he's a mountain out of a molehill kind of guy. What, what's this guy saying? Why is he wasting our time with all of this? But notice the next part says here, others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Now here's what's interesting about this word. Number one, notice that it's not deity. They were taking Paul's messages speaking in plurality, which was strange. The word that's translated deity here has also been translated throughout the, the Greek New Testament as the word for demons. Now that's kind of a little bit different. Isn't it interesting that pagan people are actually ascribing that he's talking about possibly demons? That's a little strange to me. That seems, you know, far off base. But notice, what I love about Luke is notice that he gives you the reason why. Look what he says here. He says, because, here's the reason, he was preaching, thank the Lord, Jesus and the resurrection. Or let me say it how they may have heard it. He was talking about Iesus and Anastasia, or Anastasis which would have been Jesus' name in Greek and the name for resurrection in Greek. 
They must have taken this whole thing as concepts or personalities or belief systems. Remember how they're thinking. They're thinking systematically. It's all about ideas. So they're taking this all as, okay, uh, subscribing to this camp and holding on to this desire and, 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 and this is what's the most important thing here. They're intercepting as a new field of ideas in order to increase their knowledge. Verse 19, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now you probably know this is what's commonly called Mars Hill. But let me tell you this, that would be a preacher's dream, okay? Because what they're pretty much doing is they're setting him in the midst of, in the round of all unbelievers, and they're saying, tell us more about what you're saying. That's exhilarating to me. Tell me more about this Jesus and this resurrection, this Iesus and Anastasis. Explain it to us, please. So they brought him here and they said, may we know more, or may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, here is the little commentary side note that really helps us put ourselves in the shoes of the people that might have been wanting to listen to this. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting here used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. You know what that tells you? It tells you that the Apostle Paul and his message just happened to be the flavor of the day. They were the ice cream. He was the ice cream that was being sold today. Everybody wanted to take advantage of the special. We've never heard this before. This is going to increase our knowledge and think us more, uh, help us think more about death and existence and life and, and, and whatever, platitudes, whatever it might be of they're trying to accomplish. Give us more of this knowledge. Now, I love it because the gospel is not just about knowledge. It's about conquering the heart with the love of God. And so here's how Paul moves forward. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. I don't know that he meant that as a slam. I don't think he was trying to tear them down. I think he's trying to find a connecting point. You have an intense devotion that is obviously displayed. Somebody walks through your house, they're going to find out what you really care about real quick, yes? You walk into a society or a civilization, you find out what they value very quickly. You find out what they devalue very quickly. I don't think it's any different here. In many respects, you're very religious. I think today we go kind of, ooh, and not like that too much. I don't think that's how he meant it at this time. Notice he says here, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, now, I think that's funny, because if we go back and we see that his spirit was provoked in him from all the idols, I think it's interesting that that seems to be an intense fire that's been kindled within him, and yet he makes it sound like a Sunday stroll, okay? I think that's very interesting. He says, as I looked at your objects of worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Recognize this. That's the open door. Does everybody see it? There's nothing definite or detailed about it. And Paul, being the smart Christian cookie that he is, recognizes, I can use this to meet them where they are and to introduce them to the Savior of the world. Sometimes when we're evangelizing people, recognizing where they're coming from, 
we need to pray, God, show me that open door. There has to be a connection here. And let's be honest, if God doesn't supply the connection, how could we possibly move forward not knowing that he's with us in there? So asking for this, looking for this, finding this, recognizing it, and wanting to use it to the advantage to explain the gospel very much should affect how we are looking to share the gospel with everyone. Now, notice what he says here, verse 24. The God, or sorry, to an unknown God, therefore what you worship in ignorance, and I don't think that was derogatory either, this I proclaim to you. Notice he doesn't start by giving them a Jewish history of their previous dealings with God and then try to immediately fall into the Messiah. This is a different approach than the synagogue. Look what he says. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in uh, in temples made with hands. Pay attention, please. I ask you. All starts with the attributes of God. If we've got anything that's wrong in this overly idolized and demonically saturated environment, it really comes to one common denominator. You don't know who the true God is. Let me explain him to you. This is what we have to do now. Bygone are the days when people were brought up with leaning on the everlasting arms. It's becoming less and less. They don't understand, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Even Jesus loves me, this I know. It's sometimes a foreign concept to these generations that are coming up. So what do we do about it? I'll tell you what we do. We look at the Apostle Paul's example and we follow it. You've got to start with, let's correct who God is in our thinking. Notice how he brings this up. The God who made the world and all things in it. Number one, that tells you that he's creator, yes? Yes? Okay. You can talk to me. It's okay. I like talking to you. He's the creator, number one. He's the one who made everything. That automatically establishes him as superior. It automatically does. How did you get here? Well, my mom and dad met at Denny's. No, it's... They may have met at Denny's, but that's not how you got here. The Lord God created you. Does not the Bible say when I was in my mother's womb, you formed me, you knew me? God's intricately involved in all that. So notice, he's he's the creator in a grand sense, in a special personalized sense, in a grand sense. Also, if he's the one who created, it means he existed before creation. Yes, that speaks about his eternality. He's always been. He always will be. Well, who created God? No one. To say that we're looking for somebody who created God is to bring him down on a streamlined level with us. That's not him. He's the creator. He's over and above us. He doesn't need to be created. He's the one who creates. And he's always been. So not only is he the creator, not only is he eternal, but look how this moves forward. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord. He has the right to have his say-so over the unseen realm and the seen realm. That's what he governs. He has this authority. We were talking about this in Sunday school. Sometimes we don't like the word authority. He's the authority over all of these things. So notice it's established his authority. It says here, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Why? Because he's infinite. He's not contained. Anybody ever thought about how big creation is? Anybody ever just love looking at telescope 
uh, photos. You know, the Hubble telescope brought this in to us right now. I think Carol was telling me about a new telescope that's out there that's sending back pictures that's just mind-blowing that people have seen. And we look at this and we think, good grief, that's so beautiful, or that's amazing, or, or how could something like this ever be? I've never seen anything like this before. See galaxies, black holes, whatever, the Milky Way, those types of things. You realize God's bigger than that? And He created all that. That's the handiwork of what He's able to do when He lets His imagination run wild for people to see. Good grief, that's amazing. Now, if that doesn't wet your, or light your fire, your wood's wet. Let's be honest. He's infinite because He's so further beyond all of those things like temples like they're used to for their gods. Look at verse 25. Nor is He served by human hands. Well, I'm just here to serve God. Isn't it incredible that He doesn't need that? He allows us to serve Him, but He doesn't need it. Notice it says here, as though He needed anything. He, he doesn't need to be served. Why? Since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In other words, He is transcendent. It's the idea that He is not subservient to His creation, nor is He in need of His creation. He chooses to create. Anybody remember why He chose to create? Anybody why? What, what motivated God to do such things? He just got bored. Does God get bored? No. It's actually to have fellowship with people. Love. It wasn't that he was lonely, it's that he wanted to love. And so he created people that would be objects of his grace and his love. That's why you're here. You're here as an object of his grace and his love. Sometimes we get lonely, we feel depressed and we're out of commission. Things. No, you're an object of God's grace and love and he wants to show you grace and he wants to love you. How profound is that? That tells us that he's also personal. Notice, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That means he's self-sufficient, he doesn't need any help with anything. He's also self-sustaining. Nobody's got to come along and feed him in order to keep him alive. And God, make sure you turn in at a good time tonight so you're, you're ready to run the world tomorrow and those types of things. Those are things that we're used to hearing. Those are things that parents tried to teach us and work with us on. It's, it's not God. He's also self-existent, needed no creation before. And here's what this also tells us. He's good. I mean, think about it. He gave you life. Is that a good thing? You're appreciating it now, right? I hope so. Who's asleep? For real, isn't it good to be alive? Do we realize the reason why we're alive is because God's good? Everybody see that? His goodness is just in the simple fact that we can all... Thank you, God. Wow, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Notice how he moves on with this whole thing. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth. He's sovereign. That's how he decided to do things, and so that's what he did. He has the right to. And so he took that right, and this is how he decided that history would move forward. But notice this. Having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Anybody here ever played Risk? Played Risk, yes. I'm too dumb to play that game. I look at it, and I'm just like, why would I want to be that country? I don't know. You know, it's just I, strategy. Moving pieces into place. Finding tactical ways to reach a goal. Developing a plan as it goes about. It takes wisdom to do that. What is this telling us here? Notice that it says that God determined their appointed times. So whenever the year, date, month, second was in history for this to unfold. And notice the boundaries of their habitation. God's into geography. 
We obviously know that from the maps and the pointing finger that we have because of where he's sending Paul, yes? But God was even concerned about where you are and where you would be. God placed you there. Why did he place me in Wisconsin? It gets so cold. Because it doesn't snow in southern Indiana. That's why. So you can enjoy it. Just kidding. But notice verse 27. Here's the real heart. Notice the heart that comes forward. That they would seek God. Why were you born when you were born? Why were you created when you were created? Why were you set where you were set? When you were set? When you were brought forth? Because God knew that that would be the maximum moment for you to know Him. That tells me that God was able to weigh every possibility that there ever was for your life individually and set up the circumstances to bring you forth at a certain time because He says, I just want you to know me. Wow. Wow. That's greater than any Hallmark card you ever get in the mail. The God of the universe who made all things has orchestrated all of existence in such a way as to where every person who would ever live would have the maximum potential to know Him. Forget risk, that's amazing. That is mind-blowing to me. If anything, here's what it does. It demonstrates the love of God. I just want people to know me. The love of God motivating those opportunities to come into a relationship with Him. Now, notice how he moves on here. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. And that might be, why why does he word it that way? Let's be honest. In society, don't we come in a very destitute situation? Darkness. A lot of lies being thrown at us. A lot of things that we realize maybe when we get older, good grief, that wasn't true. And that's kind of hard for us to come to terms with if we've always thought a certain way. For so long. We find ourselves groping a lot in life, whether we admit it or not. God understands. God understands, and God set himself up to be known even in the midst of that groping. Notice that they may grope for him and they may find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Why? Because he's omnipresent. There is nowhere that we are that he is not. Well, God will never see when I do this sin. Yeah, he's actually got his hand in your back pocket, he's right there. You can feel his breath on your neck. He knows. He's there. He's not far from each one of us. Notice he says here, verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, or sorry, have our existence. That's actually a Cretan poet who said that at the time that Paul is quoting. So he's using something from their secular literature. That's like us pulling Led Zeppelin lyrics and finding evidences of God through that. Don't do that. Um, As even some of your own poets have said, For we also are his children. Now that really caught their ears because that's from a Stoic poet known as Erastus. And the Stoics would have been familiar with that writing. Even though you don't believe in God, your people can't help but to write and to have God evidences come to the surface. Even a pagan culture will find that the image and likeness of God comes to the fray and shows that God is there. That's a huge thought. Now, for all these guys who are deep thinkers, you've got to sit here. They're, they're starting to put some of the pieces together. They're starting to see how I've been thinking about God has been multiplied and very diminished, and maybe I only thought it was a God of the sun, and maybe I only thought it was a God of the moon or the clouds or whatever it might have been. We're actually talking about somebody who's not just God of all those things. He's God over all those things. I would have loved to have seen the light bulbs come on at that moment. I would have loved to see it. 
So notice he says here, verse 29, being then the children of God. And why does he say that? Not because they're saved, but because they're created in his image and likeness, specially crafted by him. Being the image of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. In other words, he's not a God that you can just take an element, regardless of how precious it is, put it in a, in a figurine or a mold, and say, ha, this is my God. He's not like that. You can't contain him. You can't even picture him. He's beyond words. He's beyond image. That's very interesting. It's the exact same thing he warned the Jews about. Do not make any idols in any, any way. Notice it says here, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now, I don't know if you see this there, but that's a compassionate statement. In the times when you were bumbling and fumbling through life, not knowing what was true, right, wrong, or the other, God overlooked that. That's a, that's a pretty gracious step. He overlooked that in the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to correct their thinking. You've thought about God wrong. You need to think about Him for who He truly is. Take Him at His word and see who He truly is. Because, and I love this, He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now pause for a second, and I know that all of you were so enamored with the sermon last Sunday, so you're going to remember this, okay? If you remember, he finished his conversation with the Jews in, in a very unique way. He brought up resurrection four times to them to prove that Jesus was their living Savior, Messiah. And then he ended it with a warning from Habakkuk. Take heed. Don't scoff at this. Make sure that you pay heed to what the Lord is trying to tell you through this message. Sometimes we don't include the idea of judgment on our gospel message when we talk to people. Especially in our cultures become so super sensitive about everything and well that's just not really in vogue right now or that's very harsh language or those well, we get ridiculed for a lot of things. You don't have to be mean when you do it. You just got to be truthful. Notice here at the same way he wraps this up with an idea of warning. It is a warning. God has shown all of this to be true because that's the reason why He raised Jesus. He died as our Savior. He's raised Him to be our judge. And He is going to judge the world in righteousness and truth with perfect equity. He's going to do it. So now, here's where I love it because then the train goes off the rails. It's my favorite part. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. I love it. Immediately, you've got a divided audience. That's crazy. No one rises from the dead. But you had enough mental intrigue there to say, wait a second, there's got to be more. Now watch what happens. Real quick, I brought this up before because we've talked about this passage before. Everybody notice he doesn't he brought up Jesus' name? Jesus is not even on the radar yet. He's alluded to him as the judge. But he's never sit here and said, Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave. How come he didn't tell them this? Because they couldn't handle that yet. If they're not thinking about God correctly, they can't handle the God-man correctly. So he goes straight from the Creator God, who's over all things, and not only does he have the right to do what he wants and has compassionately reached out to you where you are, but he also has the right to judge those who do not receive him. Those are some pretty good bookends. I love what happens. 
Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. Can you imagine that? The resurrection, that's just garbage. How in the world could anybody believe that? Uh, is there another time that you could speak so that we could come and see you? I, wanna, I would like to think that Paul just went, I don't know, maybe. And just kind of went on his way. I'll, I'll think about it, you know. Let, let me check my phone real quick. I got something open on uh, Thursday, maybe. Just He just leaves. Would would you do that? Would you? Why? I'm out of here. It's getting too hot. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's gotten really uncomfortable real quick. But it just seems like Paul. Everybody see that he just lets the chips fall where they may. I he drops the microphone and just walks off stage. Here's what I think we see with this. Paul understands that the results are not up to him. Good grief, that'll give you a lot of confidence in evangelism. If our goal is today I'm going to get somebody saved, throw on the emergency brake, please. Because you and I don't save anyone. You and I introduce people to the Savior. We don't save anybody. We get to tell them about the one who has already saved them. Paul understands this. Let the results be what they may. But if he can walk away, I guarantee you that he walked away with the clear conscience. I said what I needed to say. These people are smart guys and they all know the truth. It's time for me to go. Last verse. Verse 34. But some men joined him. Stop. As Paul walked away, people couldn't stay away. Isn't that interesting? Which tells me that the Holy Spirit was doing great behind the scenes work. Remember, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's His job. That's what He does. We don't do that. He does that. Some had to join Him. I love it. And believed. Everybody see that? I got it in yellow and orange in my Bible. Okay? You know what? That It reveals another attribute of God. He's the Redeemer. He's the only one that can buy us out of the bondage of sin, out of the consequences that are death. He's the only one. There's no one else. Only He is the Redeemer. How do we know that? Because if you're setting up idols, you're offering to idols. Notice that they saw an altar to an unknown God. What do you do at an altar? You make an offering, yes? That's us trying to save ourselves. Notice that Jesus is the one who saves. He's the Redeemer, not us. Not us. We're the ones needing the saving. He is the Savior. We are the Savies. Is that even a thing? I don't know. But he says here, he joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite. Now, I don't know who that guy is, but man, he made it in Scripture. Good for him. And a woman named Damaris, good for her, and others with them. Isn't it beautiful that Paul never compromises his message? He does what we all should do. He tells the truth. He allows for the Holy Spirit to work. And he waits for God to bring the outcome. How beautiful. What a great method of evangelism for us to use today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for excellent instructions by example through the Apostle Paul. 
how merciful you are to just capture this story in the pages of Scripture. How beautiful it is to see fruit. People coming forward. People responding to the message if it would just be told. How wonderful it is to help maybe settle some anxiety we have in our hearts that not everybody responded favorably to the message. Sometimes people just don't. And I know it sounds strange. We don't, we don't like it that way. I think we have your heart where we desire for everyone to be saved. But we have to be okay with that because if people have heard the gospel and rejected, they've made that choice. They've made their decision about eternity. Lord, how important it is that we use these principles here that we've just seen walk through for our own lives. Looking for the open door, waiting for you to supply it, walking through the door, showing maybe to a lot of people, well, that's not the way that God is, or that's not who He shows Himself to be, or that's, that's not what He said. And working with people to hopefully correct that wrong thinking about you. And then to have a, an amazing opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work and introduce them to Jesus. We can all be used by you to do that work. I thank you that none of us is exempt. And on the other side, there's not a lost person that's exempt. Even a Satanist is loved by God. That's just beautiful. So thank you, Jesus, for being so gracious. We love you. In your name we pray it. Amen.